Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we'll be talking about 11 breastfeeding need-to-knows. Consider these breastfeeding mini-facts as possible bumps in the road that can be dealt with fairly easy with a bit of information and determination, but that can otherwise potentially derail your breastfeeding relationship. To help make sure that doesn't happen, Robin Kaplan is here to tell us more. Stay tuned. This episode of Breathful is brought to you by Natural Breastfeeding and their free quick start video which shows you a simple technique to prevent nipple pain and the easiest way to help your newborn latch and for you to produce enough milk for your baby. Go watch it at naturalbreastfeeding.com. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, Mighty Mamas and Mamas-to-be and Mighty Dads and Dads-to-be. As always, thank you for listening and for all the love you give the show. I truly appreciate your comments and your reviews. And if you find that this podcast is making a difference in your life, then please, one of the easiest ways that you can support it is by leaving a written review on iTunes. It's specifically special if to leave it on iTunes, even if that's not the way you usually listen to it, because your ratings combine with download numbers to move Birthful up the charts and get it in front of more mighty listeners. So the more reviews, the higher it goes. And because of this, please, please, please considering, consider letting the world know how much you love this podcast. And if you've already left a review, then thank you so, so very much. Oh, and if you want to learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, and more, then you can simply go to birthful.com and get all that information there, including other products and other things and other information that I have to help you along your maternity journey. Okay, moving on to the show. I'm really excited about this episode because the idea of creating a compendium episode with the most common potential breastfeeding roadblocks is something that I've been wanting to do for quite a while now. And to help me tackle these issues, I have Robin Kaplan here today. Robin is an international board certified lactation consultant and owner of the San Diego Breastfeeding Center. She completed her lactation consultant training and certification at the University of California, San Diego in 2009. And she also holds a master in education and a multiple subjects teacher credential from UCLA and a BA in psychology from Washington University in St. Louis. Aside from being a lactation consultant, Robin has spent the last three years working in breastfeeding advocacy. In 2013, she created the San Diego Nursing and Public Task Force to educate her local community about the California law that protect a mother's right to breastfeed in public and to provide support and guidance to mothers who have faced harassment or discrimination for breastfeeding in public. In 2016, this year, Robin started the San Diego Breastfeeding Center Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization that provides subsidized lactation consultations for low-income families and scholarship internships for culturally diverse women to become lactation educators and IBCLCs themselves. Robin lives in San Diego with her two boys, Ben and Ryan, and her dog, Tilly. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited you're here and, and also excited to see all the things that you've been doing and 
extending that knowledge, right, to to all kinds of of mamas out there, um, because it's it's so important to get this information out. Absolutely. You know, it, it's hard when I, I come from a nonprofit background. And so um, bef- before and after I was a teacher. And so it's hard for me when when it seems like breastfeeding support is only for the people who can afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like podcasts like this are so helpful because it's free. <laughs> um, but a lot of times moms need that additional hands on support. So we're trying to make it more equitable and accessible um, for our um, low-income families in San Diego. So it's a, it's been a fun project. It's stressful, but it's great. Yeah, I imagine it's a lot of work, but thank you for doing it because it yeah. is a super valid co- a cause. Thank you. So today, I, I was so happy to connect you with you because I had an idea for a show about common breastfeeding hurdles or little roadblocks or things that moms need to know that on their own, they don't warrant shows individually, but I wanted to, they're, they're important things for moms to know. So I wanted to bring them all together. And um, I am really thankful that you agreed to come on to do this. Sure. <laughs> so let's get right on to it. My first question is, should moms expect pain when breastfeeding? such a great question. So no, pain is the body's way of telling us that there's something going on and it would be nice to have a a remedy as soon as possible. Um, It is very common for moms to have tenderness in the first two weeks. That's a lot of stimulation for one part of the body. (laughs) Um, You know, and we're looking at eight or more times in a 24 hour period of this little kiddo getting on there. So tenderness um, is something that most women find fairly common, but pain, um, pain is not normal. That's not, we should not feel pain while we're breastfeeding our babies, even from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And what about the, the sensation of letdown? Could that, can that sometimes feel a little painful? It can. I mean, a lot of moms, I remember feeling it to be more like, um, like when my foot falls asleep and then I kick it and it starts to wake up kind of those pins and needles or even just kind of like a pressure. Um, some moms will describe it as painful. Um, but, but again, that, that's not the, that's not the norm. Um, it can happen, but most moms don't experience pain, um, with letdown. Yeah. So, and I had the same experience. It felt more like those pins and needles of the moment as as you could almost visualize the milk going through and coming down, totally. right? It's totally. like, I'm making totally. space. And that's, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, but, that, but it goes away, right? Right, right after the milk has come down. Um, and it is so funny because my daughter is 11 and just talking about this, I can feel the sensation. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember like standing in the grocery store aisle, like, and I'd hear another kid cry and I'd have to like grab myself and like put pressure on it. Like, oh, there it goes. Like, and so, yeah. But then again, once the letdown happens, that pressure releases and then uh, you shouldn't feel any pain after that. Mm -hmm. So back to the nipple pain. What about uh, when you do experience some too much stimulation or something's up with the latch and then you get, you know, why do cracked or blistered, blistered or bleeding nipples happen? Sure. So again, this is your body's way of telling you it'd be nice to have someone take a look and see why this is going on so we can stop it as soon as possible. Um, because cracked, blistered, bleeding nipples, things like that, that, that definitely is not what breastfeeding should be like. Um, granted it does happen. And so it happens for several reasons. Um, one, just a shallow latch. 
um, by baby. Um, it can also be caused if the baby has a tongue tie and so is compressing the nipple. Um, it can, it, pretty much it just, it's, it's how the baby is feeding. And so sometimes the latch can look perfect, but then the way the baby's using his or her tongue can't like, whether there's a tongue tie or baby had a very long labor. And so their, their symmetry is kind of out of whack, you know, initially, um, that can all cause baby's tongue to not function as effectively as it needs to. And so therefore the baby's going to put extra pressure on mom's nipple. And if, if it's compressing over and over again, it can cause those cracks and some bleeding. But, but again, that, that's not, um, that's not something that should be happening, and it often can be um, corrected with the assistance of a lactation consultant. Right. So I was going to ask you, what's the best way to heal if that happens? Sure. So, it, you know, it depends on how severe the, um, you know, are we just talking about a little bit of chafing or are we talking like, um, I mean, I hate to say it, but like a piece of your missile nipple missing, which obviously is not common, but, um, but can happen. Um, babies can get on there really strongly. Um, and so if it's just some chafing and some discomfort, um, almost kind of feeling like a sunburn or, you know, that like a cat was licking up against it. So it's a little bit raw and uncomfortable. Um, you can, you know, express a little bit of colostrum or your fuller milk once it comes in. Um, and I like to say, let the girls hang out for a little bit for about five minutes to let your, your nipples absorb that amazing nutrient um, to help kind of heal it. Um, or using some sort of, I, I call them nipple chapsticks. So um, I like to recommend organic coconut oil. Um, a lot of our hospitals in San Diego give out lanolin. Um, you know, there are all these really cool organic products out there, you know, nipple butters and nipple creams that, you know, you, you don't have to wipe off um, before your baby feeds. So those can be really helpful. And then for the moms who have like really, really um, bad looking nipples, um, there are different companies that make, um, it's kind of like a wet wound management product out there, um, like Soothies and Hydrogels. Um, you can find it, you know, online on Amazon or in Babies R Us. Play, target places like that, that they're like these little discs that you place onto your nipple. And it what it does is it um, keeps the nipple moist. And so we don't end up scabbing, it allows it to heal from the inside um, out. And so those can be very helpful um, when we're dealing with some some pretty wounded nipples. Mm -hmm. And I've got to tell you, I firsthand, I, so when I had my daughter, I was not a doula. I was not a childbirth educator. I didn't know anything about breastfeeding, didn't like, had no idea, right? So I did end up with terribly horrible, cracked, bleeding nipples. And it turned out that it, my daughter had a, a lip tie, not a tongue tie, yeah. but a lip tie. And I never knew. So, but I did follow the what I didn't have all these great like the soothies and hydrogels and all those um things that we have now but um the trick of just putting some colostrum or milk on it and letting it air dry was very helpful yeah for me for my experience my my kiddos I was not a lactation consultant either I didn't even know they existed <laughs> when I had my kids um, and so the, the lactation consultant in the hospital had given me actually a nipple shield um, to let me heal um, while we were trying to figure out what was causing my kiddos um, shallow latch um, or latches because they both have them. Um, and, you know, we, we will often use those in our practice. Um, however, I always recommend that for a mom who is using a nipple shield, um, make sure that she's working with someone 
who shows her how to use it because they can, you know, inhibit the baby's ability to get all of the milk out if it's not used appropriately. Um, and then sometimes babies get a little addicted to them. So always having an exit strategy on, um, on how to get off of them as soon as possible. Cause they, they can make it harder to breastfeed in public. And when you're out and about, um, if you're constantly looking for the shield. Oh yeah. I really like that of having an exit strategy because it, they, there, they can be a really good tool, but yes, that they're meant to be temporary. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. So should moms stop breastfeeding if they happen to have very damaged nipples? Uh, good question. I mean, it depends on the mom. If if it's causing mom some serious anxiety and stress over it, um, you know, she might consider taking a break and pumping, you know, a couple times um, in place of a breastfeed in place of those breastfeeding sessions, just to give her nipples a break. Um, you know, that the pro of that would be that it allows her nipples to heal a little bit because there's nothing going to be on them except the pump flange. But the con of it could be that baby gets used to the other thing with with which he or she is feeding from. So whether it's finger feeding or bottle feeding. So it, it does come with a little bit of a risk to try that. However, you know, some of the moms that I've worked with, like they they couldn't imagine putting their baby on and, you know, until it got a little bit of time to heal. And so this strategy w was helpful. Um, and then once they took a break, you know, one or two feedings and just pumped, then they put the baby on after that. So it just kind of depends on the situation. But, um, you know, if the mom is not going to put the baby on, definitely we want to pump to keep up her milk supply and make sure she doesn't get too engorged. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. That's great, great recommendations. And so I think the biggest takeaway is it shouldn't hurt. And if you're seeing damage, you know, there's different different things you can do to help heal and, and recoup from that. But there's an underlying situation that needs to be addressed with the latch. And yeah. so contact an IBCLC. Yeah, for sure. I mean, well, and granted, sometimes moms just, you know, in the first couple of days, you know, it's just a, that learning curve. Um, and so they might be able to resolve it on their own, just like you had described. And so but if it's something that is continuing, um, you know, for a couple of days, and you're not allowed to heal, you know, you're not able to heal, then yes, an IBCLC can be very beneficial for finding the underlying cause. Fabulous. Now, moving to on to another concern that I have is that so not many people know that it is normal for babies to lose some of their weight in the few yeah. days after birth. And and if not knowing that, it can be scary when you see your baby, you know, losing weight and, and, and especially the first days when you have colostrum and you might think you're not, don't have enough milk. What is considered an average weight loss amount? That's such a great question. We talk about this on every one of our prenatal breastfeeding classes because it's so critical to understand that you know, ba babies do lose weight. So the typical kind of normal average weight loss amount is somewhere between losing five to 7% of their birth weight. Um, anything that goes to the 10% or higher, um, we want to see what is going on. So is it the challenge of the baby having a difficult time transferring milk? Is it because mom's milk isn't in yet? Um, or she has a low supply? But all babies lose weight. And that's a really, really important concept to understand. Um, because what it does is it, it prevents unnecessary supplementation in the beginning. Mm -hmm. What about I've read, you know, more recent research that IV fluids can affect 
the amount of weight loss. Absolutely. Absolutely. There was, um, there's, there've been quite a few articles about this topic. And so for a mom who goes in and, and her epidural ends up being in longer than maybe she had planned. So she goes in, she thought she was a certain amount of centimeters or, and then for some reason, her, her, um, the progression of her contractions and everything slows down. And so next thing, you know, this maybe four hour epidural that she planned looks like it's 12 hours, 18 hours, 24 hours, stuff like that. So you are getting fluids the entire time that epidural is in. And so what that means is that um, your baby is actually going to take on some of that fluid, meaning that your baby's birth weight is going to be inflated. Um, So it's something to consider because your baby will probably pee and poop more um, than the baby who did not, whose mom did not have that many fluids. And the more stooling and peeing that we have, the quicker they're going to drop that weight. So we often will recommend when mom has a very long epidural to kind of look at what the 24 hour weight is for the baby and then start the clock then of, you know, how much weight loss baby has. Um, cause a baby losing, you know, seven ounces in the first 24 hours is, is all based on how much fluid, um, mom got during labor. Mm-hmm. That's a great recommendation. So not to go when considering the weight loss, not to go so much on the immediate birth weight, but wait 24 hours, weigh again, and then see how much is lost from that. If the mom's had a lot of IV fluids, be it from a long epidural or from an induction, because that also yep. requires some IV fluids. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, it, you know, I've medically speaking, I don't know if, you know, doctors would agree with starting it at the 24 hour. So maybe you take it somewhere in between, you know, if the birth weight was eight, six, but the 24 hour weight was seven fifteen, maybe jumping, you know, at eight, three, for example. So it just, it gives us a little bit more leeway on how much weight loss is okay for that baby before we start supplementing. Um, but yes, for a mom who's had an epidural or an induction that's lasted with fluids longer than 12 hours, that kid is going to weigh a little bit more than had that not occurred. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important for us to be talking about this because it can be scary if you are, you know, if somebody's being very uh, looking over a baby's weight and saying, oh, baby's losing too much weight. Moms can get anxious and stressed yeah, about that. And absolutely. that does not help the breastfeeding. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. And again, you know, if they're getting close to that 10% and they've had a lot of IV fluids, I mean, we still want to keep a close eye on this kiddo. Um, but it might mean that we get to wait, you know, as long as the baby's peeing and pooping, we might be able to wait just, you know, another day to make sure that everything, you know, baby's weight loss has plateaued and is now starting to go back up. Mm -hmm. And when do we expect to see that weight back, like the birth weight back? Ah, good question. So, you know, babies should start gaining weight when mom's fuller milk comes in, which is roughly between day two to day five, depending on lots of different things, labor, delivery, all that kind of stuff. Um, And then, um, you know, we would expect baby to be back to birth weight by about two weeks um, is kind of the standard of care for that. Fantastic. What about nipple shape? Is there something moms need to know ahead of time about the shape of their nipples and how that can have an effect on the breastfeeding success? That's a great question. And that definitely is 
can be a very long topic, but uh, the the short <laughs> the short answer is is that babies breastfeed, they don't nipple feed, so babies can latch as long as babies can latch onto the breast. It shouldn't matter the shape of mom's nipple. Now, of course, that that's kind of the general. Um, explanation of it. However, some babies are more particular. For babies who have high palates, um, a mom with a shorter nipple or a flat nipple that doesn't evert can be more challenging because you need to get enough breast tissue into the baby's mouth where the nipple stimulates the palate where the hard palate meets the soft palate. So if the baby has a high palate, we need more breast in there. And so to stimulate the feeding reflex. And if baby has a shallow latch, it's not going to stimulate it. But if, say, the baby has a high palate and mom had a longer nipple, she does, the baby doesn't need to get as much breast into the mouth. So you see, it kind of depends on baby's oral structure and mom's breast um, and nipple structure. Um, so there, there can be where it, situations where it is, it, yes, the shape does matter, but if anatomically baby doesn't have a tongue tie, tongue comes out well, baby's palate isn't too high, then it shouldn't matter what the shape of mom's nipple is, whether it everts or not. Um, I do wanna say something about inverted nipples though. Um, moms who have inverted nipples tend to experience, or can find that they experience um, a little bit more nipple pain um, in the first couple weeks. And that's because those tendons are being pulled on when the baby's feeding to take us from an inverted nipple to an everted nipple. And so even if the baby's latch is perfect and the, you know, the oral structure is perfect and the baby's just doing a fantastic job, sometimes moms find with inverted nipples find that for the first few weeks, their nipples just tend to be a little bit more tender as those tendons are starting to, or ligaments, I should say, I'm sorry, ligaments are starting to um, stretch a little bit to allow the nipple to evert. Mm, and that makes sense because that's, you're doing something completely different that hasn't happened in your whole life. Of yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So what if you, so from what I'm gathering from you, it's that it's more a combination of things, just like you might have, I, this reminded me of, of baby's temperaments. And you have, if you have very laid back baby and parents that are, you know, very alert and concerned, then you might have parents that are stressed because, you know, putting a mirror underneath baby's nose while they're sleeping because sure. they're sleeping too much. And it's that fit of baby's temperament with parent's temperament um, and, and having, l figuring out what combination you have and yeah. how to make it work. So it, it it seems like it's the same thing with the palate and the nipple shape. Totally, totally. That's fantastic. So what if, say, you have a, like the, the case that you mentioned, a very high palate and a shorter nipple? What are some things that could be helpful in that situation? Sure. Great question. So in the short term, that might be a time where a nipple shield is recommended um, to help the baby feel that stimulation at the top of the palate. Um, also, just Seeing how, you know, if the baby's able to open his or her mouth widely, that nipple shield might not even be necessary, um, even with a high palate, because the baby can get enough breast tissue into his or her mouth 
where that feeding reflex is stimulated. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're out in San Diego, so we're a little bit crunchy. And so we talk a lot about body work out here. And so, um, when I feel a baby's palate and feel that it's fairly high, um, we'll often recommend some sort of body work such as craniosacral therapy to help, um, work as it help work on the palate to expand it and open it up a little bit. Um, obviously very gently, we're not talking about like a palate expander at a, at an orthodontic <laughs> practice. Um, but just that the work that they do to help, um, reshape the palate can be very helpful. So that way it helps to expand it and lower it. Um, and then oftentimes with a high palate, um, it kind of goes hand in hand, really high palate, you often goes with a tongue tie. So we'd want to check underneath the tongue and check the mobility of the tongue too, because if we have a high palate and a tongue tie, um, that can make latching challenging, whether the nipple comes out or not. And so then we would want to address those underlying issues. Mm, fantastic. And, and, those are two things that we've talked more extensively in the in the podcast. So I'm going to link on the show notes to I do have an episode with Allison Hazelbaker on yeah. cranial psychological therapy. Yeah, um, she's awesome. She is fantastic. And I also have one with Diane uh, on tongue ties. Awesome. And that one was one of our first ones. So I'll link to both of those because that's if moms, if it's listeners want to go deeper into the topics, they can. Cool. Robin, what if they you have the diff, the opposite situation of a normal or not very high palate at all and a mom who has a, a larger nipple or a longer nipple? Sure. So it's very, very rare that a baby cannot get around a mom's nipple, um, you know, even when it's larger. In my seven years of practice, I'd say I've probably had five to 10 moms, um, so maybe one a year, where the baby's mouth actually was had a difficult time getting around the nipple. So the baby was a little bit smaller. Um, and so literally when he or she opened his or her mouth, the nipple filled the entire oral cavity and the baby could not get anywhere onto the breast, essentially. They were just sucking on the nipple. Um, and so... For moms like that, um, sometimes a nipple shield can help because it contains the nipple a little bit. Um, but sometimes it's just a matter of waiting a couple weeks. Usually these kiddos I have found by about six weeks with, you know, again, lots of practice at the breast, um, constantly, you know, at the breast, but just may have a difficult time transferring. We find that as they get a little bit older, their mouth gets a little bit bigger, um, they're able to do just fine. So, but again, the, that's a very, very rare situation, but um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Would this be something that is more common with preemies or is that a different solution or something ah, to observe with preemies? Good question. Um, yeah, that can definitely happen more commonly with preemies, you know, especially those ones that are born in the four pound or five pound range. Um, but, you know, I have seen these also with full term you know, seven, eight pound babies that just, um, they're, they had a hard time containing mom's nipple in their mouth. So they had to just wait until they got a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. Right now, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to talk about colostrum and what it is and all that. Sounds good. Research tells us that 92% of new moms report significant problems with breastfeeding within the first week and that common problems include nipple pain, milk production, and latching. 
Let me tell you, nipple pain sucks. It is no fun at all. And the thing is that it only takes a couple of badly latched breastfeeding sessions for your nipples to become unnecessarily damaged. Do yourself a favor and go watch Dr. Teresa Nesbitt and Nancy Moorbacher's free quick start video that gives you everything, everything you need to know to get started with natural breastfeeding. I have seen these techniques work time and time again since this is what I teach my doula clients and it's also super comfortable to do. I'm telling you, your back will not hurt from breastfeeding if you use these techniques. So go do it. Go watch the quick start video to natural breastfeeding at naturalbreastfeeding.com. And we're back and we're talking to Robin Kaplan about all kinds of breastfeeding situations. And I, before we went on the break, I was asking her, I was going to ask her about colostrum. What is it, Robin, and how does it differ from regular breast milk? Great question. So colostrum is um, our first milk that we have. So it, it, it is actually milk. Um, it's much yellower in color. Uh, the consistency is much more viscous, so um, it's kind of sticky. I liken it to uh, the same consistency as meconium. So with meconium coming out of the baby's bottom, it takes like 15 wipes to get off the, <laughs> off of there. It's very sticky. Um, colostrum is similar, um, except it's not coming out of the baby's bottom, but it's coming out of our nipples. Um, but it's just jam-packed pretty much with everything a baby would need um, in those first couple days. Um, the first couple days after mom has her baby, uh, we have very little in quantity. So the colostrum has to match with that very little quantity to be a super power in quality. And um, so that uh, that's essentially what it is. It's just our it's our first milk with everything our baby would need. It packs a punch. <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> yeah. So, and for moms who are concerned that, uh, um, you know, I see colostrum, but almost nothing comes out and it, that they feel that they don't have enough milk for their babies. How much colostrum does a newborn actually need? Ah, great question. So um, in the first day, so up until baby's about 24 hours old, our babies need about five milliliters of colostrum per feeding. So we're looking at like, what is that, half a teaspoon? Mm -hmm, <laughs> Something very, very, very small. And then what happens is over the next couple of days, um, our colostrum gets a little bit more robust in volume. And then it also starts to transition over to our more whitish color um, milk. And so by day three, we're looking at about 30 milliliters of this kind of colostrum slash transitional milk per feeding for the baby. Um, and then it starts to slowly increase over time um, with over the over the next or, or over the two weeks time. Um, so that way it's much higher in volume by the time the baby reaches two weeks of age. But, um, but yeah, the first couple of days it's, it's pretty minuscule. And so for moms who are seeing it, that, you know, that's what we're looking for. We want you to be able to see it. We want you to be able to hand express a little bit of those drops out. So you can see that you actually do have colostrum and, and actually a fun fact about colostrum is moms when they're pregnant, start making colostrum at about 12 weeks. Um, into their pregnancy. And that's so if the baby is born prematurely, that colostrum is actually gestationally specific for their child. So it, you know, for the babies that are born, it, 
30 weeks or, you know, really, really young, um, it's actually considered medicine for them. So that colostrum is, is really, really important to get into our babies in the first couple days. Oh, I just love how breast milk adapts to what the baby needs and how big they are. That's absolutely. Yeah, it, that's, cool. that's a superpower right there. Like, it is. It totally is. <laughs> what about, um, so we talked about the so first day, it's only like a little half a teaspoon. So like a little marble the size of the stomach and that baby yeah. needs for every feeding. So not much at all. But how is there a way to for moms to feel that baby is getting enough that they know that or to ease their anxiety of how much baby is getting if they're getting enough? Sure. So, you know, obviously we don't intend for moms to sit there and weigh their babies before and after every feeding. Um, You know, we, we want to be able to try to trust in the system, but there are some important things that we're looking for. Um, We're looking for a baby not to lose more than, you know, about 7% of their birth weight in the first couple days. Um, we're looking for peas and poops. So the first day, we're looking for very minimally just one pea and one poop. Um, and then the second day, we're looking for two of each. Third day, we're looking for at least three of each um, up until about day five. And then we're looking for about five of each um, per day. Um, if baby has more than that, fantastic. They're an overachiever. That's wonderful. Um, but yeah, I would say looking at looking at the weight and so not necessarily weighing it definitely not weighing at every feeding, but baby's going to have a checkup at their pediatrician or by their midwife, um, you know, day three, day four of life. And so that's where we make sure that they haven't lost too much weight. And then we always recommend that as long as everything's going okay, um, having baby checked again at two weeks to make sure that they're back to birth weight. And if they're not, then that gives us an indication that um, they may not be transferring as much as their body needs. Um, And for families who are are concerned, maybe the weight's a little bit lower than they liked at day four, day three or day four, maybe going to get a weight check at their pediatrician's office or at a lactation consultant's office um, around day seven as well, just to make sure that, you know, we're not hoping that things are going okay between day three and day 14. Um, That's a long time in a kiddo's life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because their stomach at that point grows from the size of a marble to the size of almost a, uh, what are we talking about? Like a golf ball. That's enormous change in size. Exactly, exactly. So I just, you know, I don't recommend families taking their babies for a weight check every day. I mean, you go in right after your baby's had an enormous poop, and you're not going to see any weight gain. So, but you know, giving it a couple days, and especially if if you're concerned, you know, just go in for a weight check and just check and make sure that they're putting on what they need to. And then again, really looking at that two week mark and making sure they're back to birth weight. Yeah, and trusting those diapers. <laughs> yep, and trusting the diapers, absolutely. Awesome. Robin, let's talk breast shapes and behavior. Does the size of the breast have anything to do with the ability to breastfeed? That's uh, such a good question. No. Well, actually, no. I, I take that back, actually. Um, yes, it can. Um, so if we're looking at, at, if we're looking at, a, at a breast, um, you know, we're looking for... We're looking for suppleness. We're looking for breast changes throughout pregnancy um, or during pregnancy. I should say it doesn't have to be throughout. Um, we're looking for breast changes um, in fullness and veining um, in the first couple days. So, so that's important um, to tell us that the hormones are doing what they need to do to set up the pathways for creating milk. 
as for I, I, Nancy Morbacher has a beautiful info, infographic on breast size and capacity. So saying that a mom who has a B cup compared to a mom who has a D cup, that mom with a B cup might have to feed her baby more frequently because the capacity um, may not be able to contain as much volume um, as the mom with the D cup. However, it doesn't mean that she can't produce the amount of ba milk that her baby needs but it just might have to be removed more frequently. And it, that's, it, it sometimes works that way, but I, her infographic is fantastic. Um, and I know you've, you've worked with her before, so you might be able to find that. I will. Um, I'll look for it and link it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to go back to, does the breast shape matter? Well, sometimes it does. Um, and this is a, I'm going to give a very brief summation. This is a much longer topic. Um, but for women who have insufficient glandular tissue, so um, tubular breasts, um, a space in between her breasts that's larger than kind of like a quarter or a fist size, um, you know, nipples that are facing um, diagonal, so out towards the side of her rather than down or out. Um, one breast that's significantly larger than the other, um, or bulbous nipples are, are very, um, are more flat chested. Um, and not having that suppleness um, underneath the breast. Um, that, those can be indicators for a lowered milk supply. Um, but again, that, that is a much, much deeper topic. I'm just brushing along the top of it. Um, so, but if for those moms who are listening, who, you know, when they look in the mirror, they, they say, you know, they think to themselves, my breasts look different than my friends or what I see on TV or just what, what I had imagined breasts would look like. Um, then that, that's a conversation to have with, with an OB or with a lactation consultant, just to make sure that, um, baby's being followed for weight gain, just in case she does have insufficient glandular tissue. And, um, women who have very, very large breasts as well sometimes can have that too. So it's not something that's just for women who are on the smaller side. Um, but again, much more complicated topic. Mm -hmm. Then thank you for condensing it. <laughs> Sure, sure. As, as best as possible. And, you know, I think the the advice there is or the suggestion there is for moms who think that their, like you said, that their breast shape is not what is traditionally seen or, or seems a little bit different, then they can be proactive by talking to you know, professionals about exactly. just just in a prevention sort of being ahead of the game. Um, totally. Yeah. Very cool. So what about once you've given birth and baby is here and you're giving colostrum in those first few days when your milk comes in, like what happens to your breasts during that time? So we're looking for fullness um, somewhere between day two or three to five um, where moms notice that they're I would say you have cleavage without a bra. So <laughs> they're looking a little bit more full below, all the way around. Um, you might feel some tenderness up into your armpit um, because the breast tissue, that glandular tissue, actually goes up into the armpit. Um, some moms find that their breasts feel a little bit like a balloon. So you can squeeze them and compress them. Um, but, they, but they feel heavier and a little bit um, more taut. Uh, so that's that's definitely we we want to see that we want to see your breasts 
feel more full um, at that time because that means that your fuller milk is transitioning and, and starting to come in. Um, what we don't want to see is so rock hard that um, that it's hard to get the milk out, that it's very painful, um, and that would be considered engorgement. Um, you know, typical fullness is not considered engorgement. You know, more more clinical engorgement would be, you know, the breasts feel like they're reaching up into the up into the neck. You know, they're so high and full and uncomfortable, and and then there are, there are lots of ways for helping to relieve engorgement and such. In that case, why? would engorgement happen? Um, well, it can happen for many reasons. Um, you know, I see it most commonly for, uh, for a mom who has had a lot of IV fluids. So her body is, her breasts are trying to navigate between edema. So that fluid, um, from the IV fluids that she got during labor, as well as the milk coming in. So they're competing for the same space. So that can happen and, you know, and be caused and it'll, it'll regulate once the edema goes down. Um, we also will see it for a baby who's not latching. Um, so mom it, or a baby's not latching well, so the baby's not removing the milk, um, because that's one of the best ways for, uh, preventing engorgement is just frequent removal of milk. Um, baby sleeping too long. So maybe not feeding frequently enough. You know, we like babies to feed at least every two to three hours for the first couple weeks. And so, um, if baby is sleeping longer than that, that can cause that engorgement as well. Um, and then for our mamas who have had any type of breast surgery, so um, augmentation, biopsy, reduction, they are at a higher risk for having engorgement just because um, either they, they have, you know, silicone in their breast. So again, uh, milk is competing with the space. Um, or if a mom has had surgery for reduction um, or biopsy, then there might be some scar tissue that's preventing um the milk to come out as easily as it needs to. So there, there are lots of reasons why engorgement can happen. Hmm. And if a mom does experience engorgement where it's really uncomfortably full, her breasts are uncomfortably full, what can, what can she do to relieve those? Sure. So we talk a lot in our classes and with moms about um, treating her breast like a swollen ankle. <laughs> so if you had a swollen ankle, you would use cold or, you know, ice compact um, compresses. Um, so wrapping them around your breasts. Um, there, there are a bunch of different products out there by different companies that, you know, create these um packs that you can ice packs that you can put in the freezer, but then you can also warm up in the microwave for heat if needed. Um, but really, we're looking for things to reduce inflammation, which would be cold or icy compresses in between feedings. A lot of times moms will find it helpful to actually put warmth on their breasts, like right before feeding, because it should help open up the milk ducts um, and help the milk start to flow. So either putting a wet, warm face cloth on her breast right before she's about to feed, um, hopping in the shower and uh, leaning over, kind of le leaning towards her feet and letting the hot water just kind of beat down on her back. So the heat and the warmth and then the gravity of pulling her breast down while she's um, leaning over in the shower. Um, some moms will find that they need to pump just for a little bit to just help relieve some of that pressure as well. Um, but again, I, I, we don't recommend that unless absolutely necessary because that sometimes can exacerbate the problem. So, you know, we wouldn't pump to completely drain unless the baby's not getting on. Um, but if the baby is latching but it's just having a difficult time, 
Mom can pump for a few minutes beforehand to soften her breasts. Um, she can use a really cool technique called reverse pressure softening uh, that was created by Jean Cotterman, um, which is putting your fingers kind of so it looks like a flower almost and then pressing back on the areola to help disperse that, um, that fluid in the areola. It makes it a little bit softer and pliable for baby to get on. Um, sometimes moms will use some sort of anti-inflammation um, medication to just help reduce it as well. Um, but yeah, that, those, those are kind of our go-tos. Fantastic. And once after, you know, a few days, a few weeks that, or a few days, like a week that the milk has come in and kind of the milk, um, supply has been supply and demand kind of have regulated and then moms aren't feeling their breast be have that fullness that they had at the beginning does that mean that something's wrong with their milk supply usually not um our body is not does not expect to stay in that permanent state of fullness and engorgement um our body is supposed to regulate and get used to the added fluid there so most moms find that you know by the time they hit two weeks that their breasts don't feel that full. Um, They might feel more full if their baby um, goes a little bit longer in between feedings um, or as they come up upon that feeding time. But um, it usually is not indicative of a milk supply decreasing. However, in some cases, um, it can mean that. And so if a mom is used to feeling that fullness, you know, beyond two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, and then all of a sudden they're not feeling as heavy Um, it might mean that her supply decreased just a tad, but I would recommend looking at baby's behavior too. Um, sometimes moms with an oversupply will constantly have really, really full breast. And then as their supply starts to regulate, it's decreased, but it's still meeting baby's needs. So baby still seems really happy. But if baby is tugging and pulling and kind of banging on the breast and just kind of showing behavior that, that something's not right, and mom's feeling that her breasts are not as full as they used to be, then that would be a time to go meet with a lactation consultant just to make sure that um, that her milk supply is adequately meeting her baby's need at that time. Mm, and that's such a great reminder that breastfeeding is a relationship between baby and mom. That it has, you know, it, it as baby changes, everything changes and it needs to adapt and and what might work at the beginning isn't working later or the other way around. It might be really hard at the beginning and then you kind of get it and then it's smooth sailing from there. Exactly. Yeah. What about, I I call it the padiddle effect. So (laughs) when you have one baby prefers one breast over the other and you you end up having like one breast is way bigger, different size cup than yep. the other one. What the, then? The, the super boob and the underachiever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, well, you know, sometimes that just happens naturally. I mean, most women have one breast that's larger than the other. Um, we often will notice it kind of casually before we've had our babies. And then was, as we start, as we become pregnant or we start breastfeeding and our breasts grow, um, it becomes just a tad bit more obvious. Um, so I know that when I went back to work and I was pumping for my kiddos, one breast produced twice as much every single time. It did not matter what time of day. It did not matter which child I was pumping for. Um, but just one produced twice as much as the other. Um, so sometimes babies will prefer 
either the super boob or they might prefer the underachiever if the super boob is like the floodgates have opened and there's an enormous waterfall pouring into the baby's mouth. So um, really there, there's not too much you can do about it. Um, if a baby is preferring one side over the other um, straight from the beginning, um, then we often will recommend body work um, like the craniosacral therapy or chiropractic because if baby was sitting kind of funky in utero and so one side of the neck is a little bit tighter than the other, that can cause that preference of one side over the other, which, um, which can also mean that one side's going to get better stimulation than the other. And so that side that's getting better stimulation might produce more. But if it's something where it's just anatomically that that's the way you're built, um, know that they, they go back to the way they looked after you're done breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And so there's nothing wrong. <laughs> nope, no, nope. not at all. Yeah. Just normal female anatomy. And you saying the, the comment about going back to work and pumping and noticing how much more you would get from one breast from the other reminded me of another question that I had for you. And it is... Say a mom, especially the first few days, is pumping and not getting very much. How does that equate to what their their baby is getting? Ah, yeah. So the pump, the pump will never be as good as a good feed, a well feeding baby. So um, the pump cannot be indicative of a mom's supply because the mechanism that's that's used um, is different than a baby's suck. So it can be for a baby who's not latching and a mom who needs to pump, um, it, it can remove your milk. I mean, I, I don't want to bash pumping and I also don't want to make it seem like if your baby's not latching, you're never going to get a full milk supply. That's absolutely not true. I mean, you can talk to moms whose babies are in the NICU and they're, they're pumping more than their baby needs, um, but that's because they're providing a lot of stimulation through the pump. Um, but it's really, really hard to get colostrum out with a pump. Um, so in those first few days, unless the baby is not latching, um, we often recommend doing hand expression instead, just because it really can help um, massage the milk out a little bit better than the pump. Um, but, if the, but if a baby's not latching, we are absolutely gonna recommend um, a pump just to provide that stimulation to really help bring in mom's milk supply. So we can't really rely on the pump to give us an accurate assessment of how much baby's taking in. Um, but that's why like breastfeeding support groups, things like that um, can be really helpful because they often have scales where you can weigh your baby before and after a feeding and see how much your baby's taking in. Um, so it's kind of a fun little trick you can do. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, I like the mention of hand expressing, especially but I find if, like you said, if babies is going to the breast, but you're, you want to sort of give that breast an extra stimulation or there might be some separation initially because of a cesarean or baby has to go, you know, just to at the NICU for or the not the NICU, but the just the. Uh, well, yeah, we see it at the NICU for sure. Like baby has to go to the NICU for a couple of days. And so there's that separation. Mom can't get down for every feeding. Um, so the hand expression can, you know, pumping at that point would be critical, but if she's finding that she's not getting as much as maybe she would have expected, you know, trying a little bit of hand expression for a few minutes on each side will often help, um, get the milk out more effectively. Mm -hmm. And I find sometimes colostrum can just get lost because it's, you're looking at half a teaspoon that it's hard and can yes. get lost in the pump exactly. piping and yeah, on the tubing. Exactly. Yeah. Very cool. What about... Robin, we, I've heard a lot about the whole hind milk, fore milk, 
dichotomy and that you should switch your baby from breast to breast or keep baby in one side, make sure they get the four, the hind milk because that one's more nutritious than just the four milk. And then more recently, it seems that that's not really an issue and it doesn't, it, moms should not be concerned about this. What, what, what's your take on it? What can you tell us about hind milk and four milk? Sure. So this, um, we have an article on our website called the four milk, hind milk controversy. (laughs) Perfect. Because I feel like, you know, it's, it's something that we hear moms all the time saying, well, I heard I needed to keep them on, you know, this side, the first side to get all the hind milk, and then they're too tired to go on the second side. And so what I, what I tell moms is that usually a four milk, hind milk imbalance is associated with a significant oversupply. So if a mom has so much milk, mom's producing six ounces and baby only really needs three. So the baby gets on the breast and feeds on the first side and then is moved over to the second side and feeds on the second side. The baby's going to get that more watery, concentrated um, for milk. Um, And then, so at that point, you know, we're looking for what are the signs of the for milk imbalance. And those are, you know, green, super watery, mucousy stools, um, super gassy baby, because they're not getting that hind milk that's holding all those calories in the belly and everything. And so it's just creating a lot of gas. Um, Babies who are gaining like a pound a week instead of, you know, half an ounce a day. Um, so even a little bit less than half a pound a week. Um, those are the ones that we want to look at. Is there a four milk, hind milk imbalance? So what I recommend to moms is, you know, when they're asking when they should switch sides, you know, some moms will just switch at like the 15, 20 minute mark and move baby to the other side. Other moms will find that they offer one side as dinner and the other side as dessert. And then the next time around, the side that they ended on is now the dinner side and they end on the other side for dessert. Um, but I do recommend for moms, especially in the beginning, to try to offer both sides during each feeding because um, the more stimulation that we have, the the greater the milk supply is going to be in the future. So I typically recommend don't even stress about, don't even think about four milk, hind milk stuff unless you have a very, very fussy baby, a baby who has green poops, you know, pretty consistently, like one here and there is not a big deal, but every time very, you know, watery, mucousy, and the baby who's just, um, you know, and who's gaining so quickly that you could just tell they're just really uncomfortable. Then we would look at how to manage that a little bit more. Awesome. Fantastic. And the last question I had for you, I feel we've covered so much topic in little time. I'm I'm really excited about this. (laughs) (laughs) What is dimmer and how often does it happen? Great question. So I was, I cannot find, um, I was, you know, using Dr. Google online to try to find what the percentage of women is that deals with DEMER, which stands for dysphoric milk ejection reflex. Um, I could not find anything. And granted, I I didn't look for too long. But, um, but I don't know what the percentage of women who have it is. Um, It's not very high. Um, so it's not super common, but it, but it is common enough to where there's like a condition that, you know, it, it, it is, a, it is classified as a condition. Um, but essentially what it is, is it's when, um, as the mom right before she's going to let down, um, she has negative emotions. So, and it's, it's a physiological response 
because there's this sudden decrease of dopamine in the brain right before letdown. It's not a psychological response. So it's not that a mom who's dealing with postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety is necessarily going to have demer. Um, but, uh, it, because what happens is right before the milk lets down to right into a few minutes that it starts to let down, a mom will have this feeling of just, it, it, it ranges. Um, you know, it can range from sadness to all the way at the end of the end of the spectrum is suicidal ideation. I mean, it, it can be really severe. Um, but it's one of these things where it lasts for like three, four minutes and then it's gone. So it really is that crash of dopamine. And then as the hormone regulates, um, then she no longer feels it. So, um, it's kind of one of those anomalies out there that, um, can be really debilitating for moms. Um, especially if they don't realize that there actually is a condition. I find that when my moms present this symptom to me and we talk about it and they realize that there's actually a name for it and that what they're feeling, um, you know, again, has a name, has a syndrome and they learn about it. I often find that it really, um, kind of lowers the intensity of it. It's like that education piece is, is so important. Um, but then there are other ways of managing it if, um, if the intensities are really strong um, and they're really just disliking breastfeeding because of this sinking in their gut that they have every time their baby latches on. And I'm so that was the reason why I, I really wanted to touch upon that in this in this podcast, because it's something that we do not hear about, because it's, it is, you know, on the rare side. But what we do hear about breastfeeding is that it's this bonding, pleasurable, fantastic, oxytocin high, wonderful, you know, thing that you're doing with your baby. And like you said, for a mom who is exper experiencing demer, it can be tough because then yeah. you think what's wrong with me right exactly there there's a wonderful website out there that's um www.d-mer.org um and there so pretty much anything you would ever want to know about demer is on this website um and their tagline is because breastfeeding shouldn't make you feel this way <laughs> and just like you said like we hear that breastfeeding is supposed to be this magical thing, this bonding experience. And women with Demer, you know, it, it can be feel they they feel they can feel that bonding after the that you know those first couple minutes into the process. But those first few minutes can be really really intense. And so knowing that there's ways there there are treatments um, for it. Um, can be can make it seem so much more manageable. Oh, absolutely. And know that there's nothing specifically wrong with you, but there is Correct. help out there. Yeah. Correct. And that it's not a psychological response. I think that's something that's so important for women to know. Um, but that it is it's a physiologic response. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not it, it's not it's not because they've done anything wrong. Yeah. Great point. Great point. Robin if listeners want to get in touch with you or follow what you're doing or, you know, check out the other wonderful work that you do, how can they do that? Ah, you're so sweet. Thank you. Um, well, I, I sent you a bunch of my links. And so um, I'm hopeful that they'll, they'll be, uh, they'll accompany this podcast. Um, but I, I am based in San Diego. So for mamas who are in San Diego or for moms who, 
need to speak with a lactation consultant and they don't have one in their area, we do um, Skype consultations as well. So our website is San Diego Breastfeeding Center.com or SDBFC.com. They both go there. Um, we also have a San Diego Breastfeeding Center Facebook page, Instagram account, Pinterest boards, Pinterest account. Um, and then one of my favorite kind of pet projects is we actually do have a YouTube channel called DIY Breastfeeding that has about uh, 25 to 30 videos um, when we hope to start adding a few more as well. Um, so for moms, for example, who are looking on how to, looking to how to use a nipple shield, how to know what size is correct, um, how to have that exit strategy, we do have short videos that are anywhere from two to eight minutes that talk about some of the topics that we actually talked about today. Oh, fantastic. And I do m ask you to, to mention these things because I, I know that they I will put the links with the show notes, but in case Someone's not everybody looks at yeah. the... <laughs> exactly. Looks, yeah, they're only listening, then they get the information as well and can contact you. And that DUI awesome. breastfeeding videos on YouTube sound fantastic and so important because we can talk about breastfeeding for hours, but seeing it happen you you absorb so much more information so quickly um, rather than trying to figure it out by words. Totally, totally. The visual we found has been incredibly helpful. And um, I also love that we have several videos on how to baby wear and breastfeed. So, because we get that question a lot, you know, mom has a particular type of carrier or wrap and wondering how she can put her baby in a, in a breastfeeding position in it. So we do have several videos on that as well on our, um, on our channel. Ah, oh, that's fantastic. Robin, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. This has been lots of fun. Thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much. Mighty Mamas, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts. And if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Go to birthful.com where you can learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, send me messages, and much more. Birthful is also on Facebook or Twitter as at Birthful. So come say hi. And if you're pregnant, don't forget to go grab my Birth Partners Ultimate Labor Support Toolkit at birthful.com slash toolkit. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you, the Birthful Patreon supporters, and by the wonderful people at naturalbreastfeeding.com. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, Mighty One. Did you know that if you started listening to one birthful episode per day at the start of your pregnancy, your baby would be about three months old before you got through all of them? That is so much birthful. So to ease us into the summer and to help you catch up on your listening, we're going back to releasing one episode per week instead of two. Now you know.